0: Hi and welcome to the Ministry Network podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. This is the second of a two-part series with Pastor Paul Washer. Today, we'll be talking about how to fight discouragement. If you haven't yet, before you listen to this episode, go back and listen to our first installment. Also, visit ministrynetwork.com where you can join an online community and gain access to online courses on practical topics like how to do ministry to the poor. And you can also access exclusive discounts on the best books. You'll be able to connect with other Christians and discuss this podcast episode together. Now, let's hear from Pastor Washer. As you look back over the course of your life with the Lord, how has your own prayer life grown or changed?
1: I'm not a person who, you know, and my wife has really helped me with this. I'm not a person who is like, I'm going to do this so many hours. I'm going to do that so many hours. I'm going to do this, that, and everything. My primary concern, number one, is cultivating the mind of Christ. And I love that word cultivating renewing my mind in the scriptures. That's where everything begins. For a young man, it's not a system of piety. It begins in the scriptures. And as you're studying the scriptures and submitting yourself, you begin to see, of course, the importance of prayer. There are different seasons, like we must always pray. Uh, Prayer, first of all, as communion with God, as fellowship with God. People talk about, well, I don't have a set time of prayer, but you know, I pray all day. And I basically say, no, you don't, because of all the men that I've ever known and read about and everything, that the ability to pray without ceasing throughout the day is something that is birthed in private prayer, in in private devotions, in the scriptures. And so we need both of those things. But I go through seasons, even though I pray and I read the Word, I go through seasons. I remember one of our biggest things that we do here for the last 15 years has been our work in the continent of Africa through Conrad and Bayway. Uh, men like that. Man, what
0: a giant of the faith.
1: Yeah, he's one of my he's one of my heroes. golly I mean wow. Someone said, I I once said that he was the Spurgeon of Africa, and a friend of mine who's a real Spurgeon guy, he got kind of mad. And then he listened to Conrad for a couple weeks, and he came back, and he goes, Conrad isn't the Spurgeon of Africa. He goes, Spurgeon is the Conrad of England. (laughs) And for all you Spurgeon scholars, please, take a joke. Don't get mad. He is an an amazing fellow, but I remember spending a lot of time in prayer just one day just Africa 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 and then it went on for day after day after day after day of Africa I remember walking down this old gravel road back and forth just Africa Africa and then all of a sudden one day someone tells me about a man by the name of Conrad and Bayway and I hear it in another church I'm preaching in I said I gotta call this guy I just get this number I dial it and somebody picks up the phone and I said I need to talk to Conrad Nbewe, and Bayway and the person said, this must be of God. I never answer the phone. I'm Conrad and Bewe. And then, you know, this one of the biggest works we have all throughout Africa is all through Conrad and the elders there in his church. So, so you see, it's like there will be times where I'll be more given to study without neglecting prayer, but more given to study. And then other times when it isolate just times of prayer times of prayer. And I don't even really know why I remember praying for just so burdened about China many, many years ago and not having any way to figure out what do I need to do. And then I got, I remember that the prayer in that area increased and increased. And then one day I was sick and couldn't go to church and I got online I just typed in Chinese reformed something else and this little Chinese guy comes up and he's speaking in English and he says I'm speaking in English today so that you know that that I'm not a heretic those of you who may wonder that I am, uh, I follow the regulative principle and the 1689 and the Westminster. And he went and I found his phone number and I called him up. Of course, it was in LA and, you know, call him up in the morning. I wake him up, I guess, or something. He goes, who is this? I said, Paul Washer. He said, no, it's not. And I said, I need to talk to you. And it started China Bridge, in which now we have several hundred sermons in theology and everything else from men all throughout China. So prayer increased. I don't really have a set, you know, like, oh, I am I look at a certain need, whether it's Indonesia or whatever. But I'll notice that all of a sudden, if I'm renewing my mind in the Word of God, if I'm cultivating the mind of Christ, then what begins to happen is like all of a sudden one day, it's like, why am I thinking about Mongolia? Mongolia, Mongolia, why is it such a burden? And then you'll see doors open up. I'm going to say something that's going to be so unusual. First of all, one of the best indicators of what we should do is our flesh. Just write down everything your flesh hates the most, and that's what you should be doing. And what does your flesh hate the most? It hates to pray. You can watch a football game for three hours, and your leg doesn't start shaking, and you don't get nervous or anything. You don't get restless leg syndrome. You're just sitting there having a good time. You get down on your knees to pray, it's like your whole body fights you. Prayer and the Word. That's what we need today. We don't need movers and shakers and we don't need all this. We need men shut up to God who pray and study the word so that when they come out of their study, they spend the rest of their day doing the word. That may be preaching in a pulpit, preaching behind a counselor's desk, preaching in the midst of a family home. But our entire job, if we're going to be ministers of Christ, our entire job is to study and pray so that we might open up our mouth the rest of the day and proclaim only the words of God. And that's unheard of today. And let me say this, this is why the ministry of the deacon is so important. Most pastors can't do what they're supposed to do because they don't have biblical deacons. If you don't help widows in the Bible, you're in a lot of trouble. True religion is widows and orphans. So the greatest test that came on the early church was not Herod. It wasn't Rome. It was those widows in chapter 6. I got to take care of them. And the apostles answered correctly. Yes, we will. We will find some godly men full of the Holy Spirit who cares for them, but we will not neglect prayer and the ministry of the word we need to be shut up to God. We must be. And that is the key for a man that God becomes the greatest reality in our life. And that is by, I'm sorry, locking yourself in a room and studying and praying and studying and praying. What advice
0: would you give to a pastor who's trying to navigate adjustments to their theology once
1: they're in ministry? Well, first of all, don't start out with the book of Revelation. Because if you do that, you're probably going to have to do a bunch of adjustments later on. And that's why I appreciate seminaries that are going to say, okay, this is what we're teaching. Let's trace this back now several centuries. That's why church history is probably the most neglected discipline and one of the most important on the mission field everywhere. If I'm going to preach... I'm going to tear that passage apart. If I know Greek, if I know Hebrew, I'm going to tear that passage apart. I'm going to cry out to God. I'm going to want to know what it is. But then I am going to go to history and I'm going to say to myself, what have men believed? What is the general consensus? What have the godly believed? I'm going to talk to my elders. There's an elder right across the wall here and he's an elder over me and I'm older than him. There's one elder here. I've been in the ministry longer than he has been alive. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to say, hey, I've been looking at this. What do you think? When it comes to the scriptures, I'm going to seek to preach something biblically. And I'm going to check with my brethren in church history and everywhere to see, am I in the center of the evangelical faith? And that keeps you from having to make all these big adjustments. Another thing that's important is this. Let's talk about Romans 7. If we get 10 commentaries on Romans 7, we're probably going to get 10 different views. But see, I was raised in the ministry of answering questions for pastors in the jungle, in the mountains of the Andes. Now, all Christians need to know the profound truths of Scripture. But when I'm going to get to Romans 7, I'm going to do two different things there. I'm going to admit that godly men have differed. I'm going to show where men can differ and not be heretical, or where they can differ and if they cross these lines, they're heretical. And then I'm going to go, okay, this is a difficult passage, but what from this passage can we draw out that all of historic Christendom is in agreement with. And in Romans 7, you can come down to this conclusion that any attempt at any Godward thing in the flesh and in the power of the flesh is going to lead to failure and condemnation. You see, we can draw All in the All right, let's go there then. For me, when I'm dealing with complexities and the godliest men I know have differences in nuances, I will point those out. I will say also where I'm inclined to stand. But my greatest concern is to draw from that doctrine doctrine and that passage, the undeniable, undebatable truth that all godly men would agree with. That keeps you from having to backtrack a lot. We do what we do in the context of godly, godly people. Many young people react against that because then they'll go, what what are you saying? You know, the Catholic Church and all this. And I said, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that line, that scarlet line of men and women down through history that have believed the Bible.
0: Let's take a brief break to talk about our sponsor, Westminster Theological Seminary. For over 90 years, Westminster has been training ministry leaders in that great tradition of Reformed theology, that scarlet line of men and women committed to Orthodox biblical theology. Westminster graduates serve all around the world, investing in their local churches and advancing the kingdom of Christ. Now, for the first time, you can join their ranks by studying online. To learn more, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. What counsel would you give a pastor who's facing severe discouragement in their ministry?
1: First of all, try to pinpoint where the discouragement's coming from. One of the positive things about the coronavirus is it's put an end to all these big conferences where all these famous people show up. Brother, listen to me. God has only one organization on this planet. It's the church. The most important people on this planet are not conference speakers. They're not seminary professors. They are pastors of local churches, biblical local churches. You know, we have developed this thing that if you're not a... An author, if you're not well known, if your church isn't over a thousand, if you're not asked to speak in every conference in the country, then somehow you need to be discouraged because obviously God's not using you. And that is straight out of the pit of hell. Christianity is made up of churches between 25 people and 150 people. The leader of missions, of world missions, is not a mission expert or a mission director. The leader of world missions are godly elders. We need to be careful where is that discouragement coming from? Because I see a lot of men are discouraged because they're sitting there in a conference of 6,000 people and they see these guys up there preaching and they think, you know, no one even knows my name. Well, yeah, someone does know your name and it's God. And you may be far more pleasing to God with your 25 people than that conference speaker that everybody watches on YouTube. And I'm not saying that just to sound spiritual. I'm saying it's because it's true. It is as true as it can be. We could do the philosophical question. you know, Why would God plant the most beautiful rose that he's ever made in a forest? through which no one ever passes. How does he get glory from that rose? He gets glory from the rose because he looks at it every day. He glories in it every day. Our only obligation is to be men who cling to Jesus Christ, men who need Jesus Christ, and men who seek to know what Jesus said and do it. You know, there's a thing about sanctification that I've been looking into I know what sanctification is classically, and I know that this thing I'm going to add has also been identified, especially by John Newton and others. We think of sanctification as growing uh, a separation from a worldliness, a carnality, a sin, and a conformity to the revelation of God in Christ, and that is very, very true, and that's foundational. But I think there's a part of sanctification that we're missing, and because of it, we get discouraged. When I first became a Christian, man, the first year, there were some major changes. I mean major changes, you could look and say, that guy has totally transformed. Because I was a monster of iniquity. If I had just become normal, it would have been a transformation. But over 35 years now or more, I don't know how long it's been, I really thought I would have grown more. I would have thought that I would have become more holy. That little, those little foxes that spoil the vineyard, that they would have been eradicated a long time ago. When I look at myself and I say, wow, that's discouraging. I haven't grown as I thought I would. But then there's one area in my life where I can say, whoa, light years of growth. And what is it? I have grown in my recognition of my absolute need of grace. John Newton, in the only hymns, in one of the songs, he says that when he gets to heaven, basically, that he will have one boast above all other Christians, that no one else will be able to compete with him, that he will have bragging rights, you know, above everyone. And you think, whoa, that's prideful. And he says, my brag will be this, my boast, that of all of God's children, I needed grace the most. And sanctification is also our growing in our sheer recognition that there's only one hero in this story, and it's Jesus Christ. You know, I have the privilege, I don't know why, I mean, uh, I can barely read, but I have the privilege of being around some of what I consider some of the greatest men in Christianity today. And it's such a privilege, and the most encouraging thing is that they're just normal there's only one hero in this story. And so when we're discouraged about our ministries and we're discouraged about our lack of growth, there's is realized that Christ is everything. We will always carry the title of having been saved passively. You know, someone's acted upon us. There's only one Savior. There's only one hero. It's not Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or John MacArthur or any, anybody else or R.C. Sproul. The hero is Jesus Christ. Everyone else is just an utter... Reject. The greatest moment of piety of Robert Murray McShane would have only earned him hell. You know, and I mention him because he's known as the pious young man that ever lived. The greatest moment of faith of George Mueller would have not taken away his sins. I think that we need to realize that in the kingdom of heaven, that we have finally passed through a door where there's no longer gauging or measuring that we're all just saved. And we're all dearly loved. And that's the thing that most encourages me, is the unconditional, unending, perfect, immutable, I mean, how many adjectives can I give? Love of God toward me in Christ Jesus. That's the thing. That's it. That's all. And, and it's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? I mean... It's Him, and, and that's what eliminates the discouragement. I tell a lot of workers, you know, missionaries and stuff, and they're discouraged and things like that, and they think, you know, when I walk into heaven, you know, God, you know. And I always tell them, I said, Jesus Christ did not shed His blood on Calvary so that the first time you see Him, He will have a scowl on His face about all your failure. And for me, the strength, if I have any, it is the unconditional love of God. One time, some people came to our church for about three weeks, and it just so happens the elders had asked me to teach for those three weeks on Wednesday. An elder came to me one day, and he goes, yeah, one of them came up to me the other night, and he was kind of smiling. I said, what did they say? He goes, well, they said, has Brother Paul compromised? He said, I knew the moment they said that what was happening. And he said, well, why? And they go, well, we've been here for three weeks, and all he has taught on is the unconditional love of God and the lavishing grace of God and the cross of Christ and how much God delights in his people. And he goes, you're not seeing the YouTube Paul Washer. You're seeing the the real guy. This is what... Because my conviction is that once a person is truly saved, their greatest need is to understand the love of God. And Paul said that it was the love of Christ that constrained him. Paul isn't saying my great love for Christ pushes me on. He's saying Christ's great love for me pushes me on. You know, that's what makes me want to be more holy. That's what makes me want to be more obedient. It's not that I'm going to get another cookie when I pass through the gates of heaven. It's going to be, you know, he loves me.
0: I think people expect, because of the YouTube Paul Washer, that you're just going to
1: start beating him up. And usually when people meet me, the thing they go is they're disappointed because I laugh too much.
0: (laughs) One thing that's just so clear for your ministry is that all the focus that you put on our wickedness is because you realize Jesus loves wicked people.
1: Yeah, it magnifies the Lord. And also, you know, she loved much because she's been forgiven much. But that applies to every one of us. One of the greatest works of God is just unveiling, I don't know how to say this any but unveiling our sin, unveiling our failure. And with each one of those unveilings, we see, you know, all oh, those things I said when I was young, like, you know, it's only Christ and I can't earn my salvation. Oh, I understand that now in a deeper way, a deeper way. But as that increases, our understanding of our total inability also increases our understanding of grace and our appreciation of the work of Christ. That's why, you know, blessed are those who mourn. The Christian life is basically this. You get saved because there's a revelation of God. You understand God as you've never seen Him before. You understand yourself as you've never seen yourself before. And that brings sorrow. But then that sorrow is transformed into joy because you see the grace of God in Christ. But that continues on throughout our whole life. As one walks in the Christian life, what happens is you begin to see more and more of God. But you also begin to see more and more of you which leads to a greater mourning But you also begin to see more and more of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the purse of Christ, which leads to greater joy so that you have this person who, in one sense, at the end of his walk with Christ, he's far more broken than he ever was and far more joyful than you could ever imagine. And it's this almost seeming contradiction. And there's also a transference. When someone's young, their joy in following Christ oftentimes is their performance. Did they perform well? Toward the end of their life, that switches from my joy doesn't come from my performance, but from the character of God and what he's done for me in Christ. And so that idol is moved out of the way. Now, you will become more pious and more devoted, but the focus is on the grace of God, the kindness of God. And that great revelation of that is in the cross. We have to keep going back, the cross, the cross. You know, I've got a whole section over here you can't see. I mean, the whole thing is Spurgeon from the top to the bottom. I've even got one Spurgeon book that I haven't found anyone else has. But I always laugh. People talk about Spurgeon was a great preacher. I said, well, I'd be a great preacher too if I only preached one message. And my whole point is, you know, I do feel like he's the greatest preacher who ever walked the planet since the apostles, yet it's the cross. It doesn't matter where he starts. I know where he's going to finish. And when he does specifically say that he's going to preach on the cross, I wish I had done the statistics on this over the years. When he's really going to preach on the cross, he'll always start with an apology in that no matter what I say, this sermon's going to be a failure. When I start talking about my Lord, this sermon's going to be a failure. And then He'll go into, if I had the tongues of, you know, of uh, angels, it wouldn't matter. If I had the mind, it wouldn't matter. Cannot comprehend the glory of God in Christ. So that's where we always want to point people. I'm doing a, a series right now on YouTube for all the kids in the coronavirus. I just thought, you know, I'm ai taught through the book of Proverbs like four times to my own children, so I'm just going to teach kids. So I get in here and I teach kids. And one of the things I show them is that we spent like 12 sermons on verse 1, I think, or something, verse 2. And the reason why is I said, look, i got to keep you from misusing this book. You're not saved through the law, are you? No. Well, how are you saying? Well, the law points me to Christ. The law tells me I'm a sinner and points me to Christ. I said, yes, it does. And Proverbs tells you that you're a fool and points you to Christ. (laughs) And then Christ points you back to Proverbs to learn something. But I said, this whole book is also designed, everything in Scripture is designed to point us to that That person. Did you realize how amazing it must have been? I mean, literally jaw dropping when Jesus of Nazareth looks at all these rabbis and he said, Everything in that book of yours, everything all I mean, and that was the book, everything in the law and the prop all of it is about me. Can you imagine that statement? So he you know, he is the most extraordinary person. The older I get, the more I think about heaven, knowing that there's oh so much. There's a mystery. But knowing the cross, that a wide entrance will be given unto even someone like me. What is waiting? If you could catch a glimpse of it, you would be willing to die 10,000 deaths of torture just to catch another glimpse of it and what is waiting, this is not my life, this is not my world, this is my battle, my fight. And those pastors who are pastoring 100 people, you know, 25 people, and they're faithful, they're more pleasing than the mega church pastor who's not.
0: Pastor Washer, I think it would be wonderful if you could speak a word of prayer over our, our listeners, people who are pastoring those 25 member churches day in and day out, and just bring them before our Lord and ask Him to bless them.
1: Oh dear God. I come before you in the name of your Son. God, I praise you that you are omniscient, that you know every hair on every head of your pastors, of your ministers, of your evangelists, of your teachers. Oh, dear God, remind them and expand their knowledge of your love for them Lord, please identify the errors in their thinking that would cause them to think, that, to believe that they've not been a useful servant because they've been hidden away or their ministry appears small in the standards of others. Dear God, help them to believe you, to believe your word, to judge with righteous standards, to be faithful unto the end. Lord, I pray that you would increase their fear of thee, that they would not add to your scripture or take away from it, especially with regard to your bride, that they would do what is commanded of them in scripture and not journey into other matters, secular methods or silly plans of men who supposedly have larger ministries. Lord, cause them To grow in their desire to know you, increase their knowledge of you, increase their ability to explain you, to expound you, to expound the scriptures. Please help them, dear God. Please. Amen.
0: Pastor Washer, thank you so much for joining us here on Ministry Network.
1: Well, brother, anytime you guys need something from me, just give me a holler and I'll do what I can. I'll do what I can, and we'll see if the Lord will use it somehow.
0: Tune in next time to hear us talk with Rachel Denhollander about abuse in the church. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com to access practical online courses, exclusive book discounts, and online community. You can also visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.